Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Well, hello, podcast listeners. My name's Anna David. You are listening, or to be accurate, you're about to listen to After Party Pod, a look at all things after the party. And we mean, and when I say we, I think I mean I, I mean after that other party ends. This is a a fresh, funny And I hope entertaining look at addiction, recovery, and all that comes in between. It will feature an interview with a guest, uh, typically a guest who is in recovery from addiction, talking about that recovery from addiction. And the rest, I think, is a bit self-explanatory. Now, what else do you need to know? Um, You need to know that... After Party Pod is part of the After Party Chat website, and that is www. You don't need to put those anymore, but you know, if anyone real old school is listening, www.afterpartychat.com, which is a full website with lots of great content. And uh, this podcast, we will always be discussing at least one of the stories on After Party Chat that week. Uh, What else do I need to tell you? I need to tell you that that glorious theme song you just heard is called Welcome to the After Party, and it was written by Seth Rothschild, uh, published by Hair Map Music, performed not by Liz Fair, which is what I thought when I first heard it, but by the musical group The Patience. And um, we love that theme song, and you love that theme song. Uh, So go do all sorts of glorious, supportive things uh, to honor Seth Rothschild for creating it for me and for you. Uh, Now, my guest today is Pat O'Brien. You know him as uh, a sports newscaster, as an entertainment reporter, uh, the face practically of entertainment news for a long, long time. Um, He is also a recovering addict, uh, a guy who cares a lot about helping people, and somebody that I interviewed, um, I have no sense of time, so so you'll hear me say that I, in the interview, I thought I interviewed him a year ago, he says it wasn't, it was more recent. Um, I think that he describes addiction and life and all of these things well and I think he's a very good guy and I hope you enjoy this episode and uh, download it many 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 times and give it lots of really nice reviews and stars and all those things that that you you alone have the power to do and um, I, I really do thank you for listening so thank you and uh, now may I present my guest Pat O'Brien. I'm sitting here with Pat O'Brien. Hello, Anna. Hello, Pat. How are you? Good to see you. Well, it's good to see you. We sat together, uh, and I interviewed you once. I think it was almost a year ago. It could not possibly have been that long ago, but we had nice... We, we had, had nice. We had nice brunch. I do remember. I do remember toast. I remember butter on toast, and I remember you uh, complimenting me on being a woman and um, eating butter. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, as a uh, recovering alcoholic, I eat butter, salt, everything I can put in my body, except for drugs and alcohol. Sugar. Sure, lots of sugar. Thank God for sugar. You know, sugar and uh, 
Yeah. As much sugar. I actually eat sugar cubes. <laughs> no, I don't believe but that. But I, I don't have the obsession to drink anymore, so whatever works, works for me. Exactly, exactly. But good to see you look great. Well, so do you. And so how long has it been since you have had a drink? Uh, it's been almost, well, you never say almost, do you? Um, You're not supposed to, but I don't know. Right. Uh, in God willing, in November, I'll have five years. But I've, I, I, yeah, there's an app. I have that app, you know. Yeah, that it's tells like you how 42,000 hours or something. But it's uh, well over four and a half years. You know, I have that app, and I have to say that it, there's something wrong with the way I downloaded it. It always goes back to zero. So I don't know if that says something about No, mine me. does too. It's a bad app. But <laughs> I do know the world record is 24 hours, so that's all I keep track of, really. The people that keep days, uh, when you say how long, they go, you know, 19,000. 24 hours of world record. So if I can get up today and not have a drink, I'm grateful. So you set the world record today, as a matter of fact. Oh, well, so far. Well, I did too. We're tied. So we're tied. We're batting 1,000 so far. Yeah, wait. So November what? Because my birthday, my anniversary is November 19th. Mine is November 5th, the uh, same day uh, of Barack Obama's uh, last drink, we hope. <laughs> uh, but the day he got elected was my last day of uh, drinking. Okay. And okay. I went down on a big splash, too. Well, you want to talk about the big the big splash you went down in? Well, I mean, you know, everybody has their bottom. They always talk about that. What what is a bottom? What does a bottom mean? Uh, it means complete uh, desperation. Yeah, that's where I was at my own home in Nantucket, million dollar beautiful home, you know, uh, right on the beach. And on my final day, I'd gone there to rest, and I drank uh, a little over a dozen bottles of wine, which really isn't very good for you. I will say it was good wine at well, the it, time, but it landed me in a in a cottage hospital there on Nantucket Island, and then I had to be uh, medevac to uh, Hazelden, where I then got sober. But I mean, you know, everybody says you got to find your bottom. Now, look, I was at rehab three times before that, and the first one was a joke. The second one uh, was a, well, they were all jokes um, because I wasn't ready. So but, the rehabs themselves weren't jokes. It was your attitude about it. Exactly. Right. I could blame it on the rehab. But I'm not gonna. Uh, I did get a nice tan at Betty Ford, though. No, I mean I think you got to be. I think I fought the first time. I uh, I just didn't want to be there. It was an intervention. Uh, but I tried. I did try a little bit. I was sober for a while, but uh, chronic relapser. But the, but at Hazelden, I just lost the obsession. I swear to God, uh, I have not. I am not one of those people now who looks at a drink or goes into a bar, which I can do with friends. I have nothing. Uh, there's nothing I want to do with drinking. Right. And a lot of people suffer, can't sleep, or, you know, you hear about them in meetings, and they say every time they see a, a beer, they swear. I just got back from Nantucket Island, and the people on the island there, uh, a lot of people in the A there are just still, with 15, 20, 30 years of sobriety, are still fearful of July 4th, you know, because right. there's so much liquor around. So I thank God every day that I don't have that right. obsession, because I don't think... I would have uh, uh, remained sober. You know, they say it's an obsession of the mind and body, and I seem to have gotten rid of the mind part. Has the obsessiveness gone somewhere else? I still smoke, mm -hmm. but that's not, um, that's pretty normal for us. And I know you you I, have the e-cigarette now, right? I, yeah, I don't know. I quit smoking before all those, like, fancy, weird vaporizer things came around. I kind of, I kind of wish I've done all that. Are you about to do that? Yeah, I'll do it while I'm doing this. <laughs> I'm going to get a live look this, demonstration. Look at this fancy one. That's not a cigarette something. That's not a nicotine device. That's nicotine in there, yeah, and a little uh, device there. Yeah. And they no. have stores now. But uh, I'm getting rid of that, too. You're going to become perfect. No. Uh, You're going to hold on to some I'm going to progress. I'm going to have progression, <laughs> not perfection. Well, but I think it's really interesting, this this idea of it. I, I've had, I had a similar experience where, where that desire, you know, there's a there's an expression in our in our literature, you can blow that smoke at me all it's you vapor, want. It's vapor, it's not I smoke. I know. It's, um, you know, where they, it's, we will recoil as if from a hot flame. I don't recoil. I don't, um, I don't really have a reaction to it either. And I do think that that is very strange when we're talking about something that we needed to do all the time. Yeah, and I, and I think what people, I'm sorry, uh, I think what people um, have to realize in recovery is that there are three things. Uh, one is that you have to have complete desperation. You yeah. have to hit that bottom. And I don't think anybody knows what that bottom means until you've, you've hit it. You might end up in a ditch somewhere or face down in the back street of a bar, but that, could, that may not be your bottom. It may right. seem awful. But you have to 
come to complete desperation. Now, here I was one of the most, or am or was or will be or whatever, well-known people in America and was too, you know, I never wanted to admit it, uh, but I finally had to uh, surrender because I hit such a, a bottom. I almost killed myself. Uh, the second thing is that you have to listen to other voices uh, in AA that aren't your own. In other mm-hmm. words, I think a lot of people just listen to their own head right. and to not everybody else. When your own head, all it does is lie to you. Your ego is created to lie to you. Right, right. And then fall in love with recovery. And uh, you know as well as I do that if you don't fall in love with recovery and what it might bring you and the things you can do for other people, um, you're not going to make it. So those are the Pat O'Brien three rules. Those are good rules. Did you? So was it your health? What was different that time? Why did you feel desperate in a way that you hadn't the previous two times? I struggled with it, and I, you know, as you know, I struggled publicly with it, and um, it just, it just got, you know, I, I really never saw it coming. My, I didn't think my drinking became a real problem until I was about uh, 56 years old, mm-hmm. and so up until then, I was just a uh, bent for hell social drinker who could make my way home and I never you know was in jail or any of that I just well you know every, we have a lot of people come on my show and say you were the life of the party well of course I was <laughs> I was drinking great wine and buying it as well but um, I forget the question now I'm so into myself here. no it was really great I'm, I guess I'm so into what you're saying that I forgot the question too it was what was different that time oh different yeah, well, I'd, I'd been through the rehab deal, and just nothing was working. And I think at that point in time, uh, on that day, and I remember most of that day, uh, I was just I just drank and drank and drank. And then finally, the whole, um, what I call the 666, the devil part of alcoholism, just snuck up on me, and I just couldn't stop drinking. Uh, thank God for good, dear friends who got me on the phone uh, somehow, and... Uh, Stayed on the phone, put my son on the phone, put uh, people like Joe Walsh, who is a good friend of mine from the mm-hmm. Eagles, who's in recovery and is very uh, open about it and helping people. And they got me to a point where uh, I, I agreed to go to rehab. But then I just kept drinking and ended up in the hospital. And I woke up, literally woke up in uh, Minnesota at Hazelden. Okay. So were you home with your son? You no, had, I was home alone. You were home alone, and, and somebody found you? My house guy did, yeah. Wow. And, and um. You know, there are two awful, for alcoholics who have the means, there's uh, two terrible words. Uh, beach house. <laughs> <laughs> Is that one one word? Those are the two yeah, words. Yeah, those, no, those are two words yeah. there. And there's two more, being alone. Yeah. So I was at a beach house, being alone. Right. And, uh, you know, angry at everything and, and, and all that. But, you know, and I... In, in, in kind of a funny way, and I I um I cherish that, and I'm glad that happened to me because I think I'd be dead now if it didn't. Right, right. But and- I remember arriving on the island uh, to relax. I just come off a uh, hospitalization in New York for falling down again, cutting my head open, and uh, I remember going to the island to relax, and I was fine. I was going to be there and not drink and all that. And I, on the way, and this happens to so many alcoholics, liquor store on the way. I thought I'll get one bottle. Right. You know, it was a beautiful day on the island. And when I walked in, they said, by the way, Pat, we have your favorite wine here. We have a case of it left. I took the whole case right. and then drank it. So, I mean, uh, it's not a moral issue. It's a disease. And right. uh, it, it grabbed me that day. But thank God it did because um, I almost died that day, but I'm not going to die now. Not of alcoholism. I remember you telling me that before the age of 56, if you couldn't find that particular kind of wine, you wouldn't drink. That it really was not out of control for a long, long time. It was out of control to the fact that uh, I would actually go hunt for that wine. Right. Uh, it was happened to be Silver Oak, which was an expensive wine, and I just liked that wine. No other wine did it for me, and even in bars I would just not. But, uh, but towards the end, you know, I was in Alaska about to interview, um, uh, well, I forgot her name, uh, Palin, uh, Sarah Palin. Right. And... Um, Things went south for me up there, and I remember getting up one morning there and trying to find a liquor store, uh, just like you see in the movies, banging on the door. Here right. I am. Everybody saying, "Hey, Pat, how are you?" Uh, and um, uh, I went to. I finally they weren't open. I finally went to an Eskimo bar in, in Anchorage and drank just you know whatever they serve. So yeah, I was. Uh, you know, some people say real alcoholic. I'm no different than Skid Row at that point. Right. So. Uh, that was the uh, beginning of the end. But you were straight up alcoholic. You didn't mess around with those drugs and things like that. Well, I did all the drugs. Uh, not at the same time though. And I never drank at work. I really mm-hmm. didn't. I, and I never drove and drank. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a driver for one reason. Well, that helps. And that's probably why I drank more because I felt I could do anything. Right. And I never really showed up at work drunk. I never did that. But the minute I got home, I did. And I was one of those people that drank alone. Right. And, uh, you know, just sat there and fumed at myself with the grandiosity uh, awards of the century. Right. Uh, but uh, I thought it worked. It didn't. But this works better. Oh, I, so I remember you telling me that I think the first or second time you went to rehab, there was a guy there that said, or no, the second time, this guy said, I'm only here because of you because the first time you went to rehab, my wife turned to me. It was on the news that you were in rehab. My wife turned to me and said, if that asshole can get sober, you can get exactly. sober. Exactly. It was a second rehab, a good memory at, uh, good thing there's a cough button here. See that? Because <laughs> uh, I have a cold. Um yeah, I got to Betty Ford, and this guy came up to me during uh, one of the meals. He had these little round uh, glasses on, and he says, uh, I'm here because of you. I said, how'd that happen? He said, well, because every time I went to rehab, it was on the news. Right. The second time, it was the lead of the news that I had gone to rehab. Uh, but anyway, so he said, my wife nudged me on the couch and said, if that asshole can can do it, you should have the balls to do it, too. And so he found <laughs> And, you know, the funny thing about it is that I... Um, I got so many emails. You know, I had an embarrassing situation at one point, but I got some thousands of emails from people who said, "Yeah, it it, it was good to see your story," right. and, and it was out there publicly. And I got a lot of a lot of emails from women who said, "You know, I drive to my kids to school drunk." Right. And I had CEOs and athletes and executives and people calling me saying, "You know, you you helped me remind me of my illness." Right. Right. Well, I hope they did better than I did because it took two more rehabs for me. But, you know, so it serves some purpose. And I think, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous usually hates celebrities because when we mess up, it becomes news. Right. And it gives everybody a chance to say, oh, look, oh, there's another AA guy. It doesn't work. Right. And so that's why in the traditions, they try to keep people out of the news. Uh, I'm not one of those. Right. I mean, they they say that one should not identify at the level of press, radio, and film as a member of AA. But the, uh, what I see as dangerous about that is that anybody who knows absolutely nothing about AA can trash it as much as they want to. And AA can never defend itself. Um, they can. They have no spokespeople. Yeah. yeah. And we're not supposed to be spokespeople. Um, I gave a speech um, in Washington, D.C. at the end of last year. Uh, to a group of called uh, Faces and Voices of Recovery. Right. And uh, I'm part of that group. And, and the mission there is uh, to get rid of the thought that everybody has to be anonymous. Right. Um, I, still have, I still leave meetings. I'm sure you do, too. And then you see somebody the next day at the grocery store. Right. And, and they, they recoil, not wanting you, people to know that uh, that's a, how do you know Pat O'Brien? Right. You're not going to say in a meeting. And right. And still people are hiding for it. So I just feel like it's another, just another uh, lie that people have to tell. But I do understand the culture and why people don't. Well, yeah. I mean, some people are in industries where it's actually not acceptable. When, to when be. the fact that the people that run their companies just might be at the meeting with us. I was somebody who, who the day I went to rehab, I basically, you know, the minute I got out, I went to a bar. You know, I was meeting somebody somewhere, and the bartender said, what do you want? And I was like, a Diet Coke, because I'm this terrible cocaine addict. And I sort of went into this whole story, and it never occurred to me, having gotten sober in L.A. and being a journalist, um, that there was anything to be ashamed of. Um, you know, I didn't realize that... Um, I, you know, before I was talking about it before I understood that you weren't supposed to be talking yeah, about I, it. You know, I, every now and then I'll get somebody. Uh, in fact, we get uh, on the show, which runs nationwide, uh, we get a lot of people that say that I follow the same path and I'm in the same journey as you, friend of Bill's and all that. Uh, but every now and then on Twitter you get, you know, are you still a drunk and blah, 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 blah. But those are people who just have too much of a voice and yeah, beer muscles. The anonymous. You say it to my face. Try that. Yeah, yeah. I don't see you don't tweet very much, and yet still those people are are coming after you. Yeah, I you know I I did tweet for I tweet enough. Okay. Okay. <laughs> when, by the way, when my book comes out, you'll see them every ten seconds. Yeah, exactly. But I don't want to be one of those guys. Like I see, like I, I, I had met a world peace on the show the other day, the Laker, right? Uh, or the former Laker, we don't know yet. Um, and he his tweets a- after cocktail hour. Not I'm not saying he drinks while he tweets. But you get about one every five minutes, and they're worse as they go. Uh, but I love Twitter. The only problem with Twitter and social media is uh, that it does give people 
uh, who have no idea what this disease is about to literally, you know, go off on you and yeah. say, you know, you're a drunk and idiot, blah, blah. But, that, I mean, that's also the anonymous commenter world that we live in today. Where well, I'm, I have this, this game that I play, uh, and I, I was talking to Tom Hanks about this. I said there's not one person ever that you can go on and find a good comment about on the Internet. You can take, for example, Pierce Brosnan's daughter passed away a few weeks ago. Oh, I didn't know that. And um, it was, uh, uh, the, they broke it on Entertainment Weekly. So I went down to read the comments, and the comments were all horrible. Really not his daughter. It's his, Ugh. you know, why is he weeping? He adopted her, blah, blah. Nobody would ever say, we feel bad for him. Right. And you can find any celebrity, anybody on social media, and, you know, there might be good things, but the nicest people in Hollywood, and you go down, no, he's a phony, blah, blah, blah. So social media just gives mean people or dumb people, idiot, right. morons. Uh, the chance to have a voice. The, By the first way, voice they've ever had. Has anybody ever written something nasty about Tom Hanks, though? That is probably the one person alive. that I, It's hard to imagine even one of those people coming up with something. Uh, I'm going to guarantee yes, even though it's it, whatever they wrote, they would uh, it would be uh, uh, misdirected. But I'm sure that somebody saw us play in Broadway or said, with a mustache, he looks like a porn star. I'm making this up, Tom. <laughs> you know, but the, but the, nobody escapes it. Nobody. Right, right. I mean, Except, by the way, you can play that game at night. Go home and find an article about somebody. Right. The Pope. Right. Pope Francis. Oh, yeah. You know, he's he's gay, whatever. And, and there's the comments. Uh, but, you know, it's a free country. I'm not sure this is what Thomas Jefferson had in mind. But it's a free country, and I'll roll with it. I don't care. I mean, I do actually think Apparently this... I do care, because I've talked about it for 10 minutes. Well, I've made you. Um, I do think this is actually somewhat related to addiction. and You know, if addiction and alcoholism is not so much about how much we drink or how many drugs we do or how many DUIs we have, but um, a way of thinking that sort of I'm the, a piece of crap in the center of the universe and sort of filled with jealousy and resentment. I mean, this is... I don't... This is what I think addiction is. Um, and I... And I know that before I used to think that if I was really angry at somebody, I would sort of feel better if I exacted vengeance in some way. And I think that's all Internet commenters are doing when they're spreading that hate is sort of they're angry at not Tom Hanks or Pat O'Brien or whoever it is, but it's someone else. And they actually think they're making themselves feel better because they're sort of evening the score. Yeah, I'm, I'm anxious to read uh, the comments um uh, our friend Matthew Perry's on the cover of People magazine this week, right? Uh, because he's uh, turned one of his houses into a sober house, right? And, and I'll guarantee you the the comments there are bad. But you know, and and as alcoholics, uh, if any alcoholics are listening to this, I assume they are. The, the resentment is what can kill you. Yep. The resentment is uh, a perfect trigger for um, uh, for relapse, right? And I have a tremendous platform to retaliate. <laughs> Believe me. And and I know how to retaliate. And when I do, it's awful. Right. But I've tried to cut that out. But I pray to God uh, to get rid of my character defects. And that is the biggest one. Right. Is, um, is resentment. And until I realize that all the problems that I've had, which have been uh, in the... In the era of uh, murder, rape, and crime, uh, pretty small compared right. to what else, else is going on. Um, it's been my resentments uh, uh, that I've been trying to get rid of. And I think, I, I think I've got control of them now. What do you do to get rid of them? Well, that's a good question. Um, I now have an edit button in my brain that says, no, this is not what you are anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you find out in Alcoholics Anonymous who you really are. Like you hear it in Matthew, uh, by the way, said this in this article, People Magazine. The last line in Flight, the movie, did you see the movie Flight? I did. Uh, was when the kid asked Denzel Washington, who are you? And he said, I don't know. Right. And I think people have a struggle really finding out who they are. You know, I had to get through, as all alcoholics do. By the way, you're interviewing me after I've talked for four hours. You, one would never know. One would on think this was the first words and, that you um, said today. Um, but... You know, you you end up finding out about yourself, and sometimes that hurts people. You know, I think a lot of people, what they find out, this whole God thing that's always in the news about uh, uh, AA, I think a lot of people find out that their God was always their addictions. Mm-hmm. In other words, our brains are uh, set up to have attachments. Right. 
and everything that makes our brain feel better is an attachment. Could be that beautiful dress you're wearing. You bought it because not because you needed it really. But I've seen you in a lot of outfits. You don't need another outfit. <laughs> I needed this. But uh, your brain said this is good. It made you feel good buying it. Right. Uh, alcohol is one that attaches and stays. And uh, so you have to understand how your brain works and understand that alcohol, uh, it doesn't stay because it's a, they, want, they want you to go out to bars and sleep with everybody that's there. Mm-hmm. It stays because alcohol is a very powerful drug and the brain can't get rid of it. Right. Or get rid of the attachment. That's why AA's program is brilliant because it makes you realize every day that you have that attachment and that you have that ability to walk out and have a drink. Right. Without thinking twice about it. Right. And so what you do is you go to meetings and you and, and you know, you write down consequences. I mean, I think it's always better if you have kids and you look at them and say, That's my consequence. Mm. But there are people who lose their jobs and their houses and cars and, and end up in the gutter. Thank God I wasn't one of those and didn't really lose much but dignity and um, the faith of my son for a couple months. But uh, other than that, I mean, people have to realize that it's a it's a brain disease. It's now being recognized as a brain disease. Right. Uh, all the way back to um, uh, the psychologist, uh, what was it, Harry Tebow. Right. Who wrote the original theory that alcoholism is a disease. Uh, but try to explain that to the general public, no. Well... Yeah, I mean, and that actually brings me to the story that I wanted to ask you about, which is something that um, I wrote on After Party Chat about how I read two positive stories about AA. I mean, what? Two positive stories about AA in the mainstream press, um, which is pretty much unheard of. I'm sort of used to seeing it dragged through the mud. And one of them, they were both really interesting, but the one that was in Psychiatry Online talked about... Uh, it talked about um, chemically what the program of 12-step does, and it talks about how this is great. Some studies suggest that self-disclosure of the kind that occurs in AA meetings when one has a strong sense of belonging may be intrinsically rewarding by activating areas of the, of the dopamine system. Right, dopamine in your brain, which is, by the way, a, a good chemical that does solve a lot of problems like um, uh, Parkinson's. It helps with Parkinson's. But it's a, a very it's a strong drug. I wish I could have found some of that um, on the street back when I was. Dopamine um, and uh, dopamine and serotonin are my two favorite neurotransmitters. Sure, I absolutely. can't pick. I can't pick. I love them both. Um, and um, it, you know, it's basically about this doctor, Doctor Mark Gallanter, who who ha- is going around and talking about how much sense AA makes, and then somebody in England named Mark Gilman who's going around and talking to doctors about how much sense AA makes. Um, and I think that's really important at a time when you know medication assisted treatment and and all of these things um, are becoming sort of people don't really have a lot of information about it. Hazleton, your alma mater, is now a medication-assisted treatment facility. They've now embraced that. And, um, you know, I'm I'm very glad that when I went to treatment, I didn't get put on other drugs. Right. Uh, Hazleton is um, uh, two things. One, it's a hospital. Right. I'm one, and it does all those things you talked about. And two, it, well, first of all, it's got two buildings. Of two compounds, one that takes care of the alcohol, right, and one that takes care of the ism. So you go to the hospital part, you get deep. When I got there, I was near death. I, I think I blew a. Um, I paused too long on that for saying. I think I blew. <laughs> I was excited to hear. <laughs> um, I think I I, I registered uh, <laughs> uh, over three uh, on the uh, scale. Four is death, right, and. Um, uh, anyway, but they took care of that, and that that could be solved. That could be brought down very quickly, as you know, with uh, detox drugs and and uh, trazodone, all that stuff. Right. But then you have to work on uh, not doing it again. But Hazelton's program is unique in that it it it, it is a very uh, deeply involved step program. It has two of the most brilliant uh, people on earth who know the steps and the twelve steps and the big book. But then you can go to the, what's called the lodge. At really a nominal cost, it's not that very much money. You get your BlackBerry back. You can use your computer. Oh, so it's like they're sober living. And they have a chef, and it's beautiful. And there they give you intense study on the steps, and it's voluntary, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's after your 30 days. I went there for another 10, 15 days and just studied and then had the camaraderie. You talk about these articles. There was one in Harper's Magazine 
couple years ago. Oh, I remember by Clancy. Yeah, um, yeah, not our Clancy. Not our Clancy, but his name was Clancy. Yeah, ironically, yeah. Um, I say our Clancy. Clancy's a uh, legendary, well-known, figure. iconic, uh, uh, provocative, uh, controversial, controversial um, um, member of AA. Yeah, I'm not a big Clancy fan. <laughs> he knows it, but um, member of AA. This article is called The Drunk Club, and it was about the uh, fraternity that is the group of people that are alcoholics. Um, I travel all over the world. I was doing the Olympics uh, in London last summer, and thanks for calling me and telling me how good I did. You were amazing. Thanks. Can I just say, I wanted to wait for the perfect opportunity. All right, thanks. Okay. Um, uh, and I have this uh, this app called Steps Away. Mm-hmm. You have that one? Yeah, I have that one. Okay. And I would walk out of my hotel. I was in Wimbledon Village. I was at the Chelsea Hotel. And I didn't have to be on the air until around noon, London time, because um, that's when the matches uh, began. So I would walk out in the morning. I have to be at work at 10. But I'd get, get up at 7 a.m. There's a point to this. Mm-hmm. And I'd walk out, and I'd push that app in London. And it would direct me to a meeting within a mile from where I was, right. or two miles. And I'd walk to the meeting. And, and uh, once you get to a meeting you are engulfed in that fraternity. Right. And suddenly, you know, people say, welcome home. You are home. Right. And uh, no matter where you are in the world, you walk in. Uh, I've been to meetings that no one spoke English. Well, some of these British meetings, they were so cocky that... Uh, it was like they weren't speaking English. <laughs> uh, couldn't understand them. But the point is, there is a fraternity to it. And I think a lot of people and go to meetings... Um, uh, and let me say, this will be controversial, for the sheer joy that knowing that somebody could be worse off than you. Absolutely. And, and for some reason, uh, you walk out of a meeting saying, God, I'm not like that. Well, but it's not quite, I mean, I, I would phrase it more like we we all get very caught up in our heads about how, you know, what victims we are, whatever our story is that we're telling ourselves. Right. And if you go to a meeting and listen to someone else and maybe hear about a real tragedy or a real problem, it puts your own problem, so-called problem, in perspective. Sort of. But if you still have anything left in terms of grandiosity and all that, it is comforting to know that somebody had it worse than you. But the bottom line is, and if you don't get this, uh, you'll never be sober, that we're all alike. Yeah. You know, I go to a meeting at uh, way down in the hood down here in L.A., way down. Uh, and the place where nobody would go, even in Skid 2013. Row? No, no. Not that far In the uh, crack land and all that sort of stuff. And I used to drive down there in a Maserati, leave the windows open, just toss the keys to one of the guys next door. Say, take, you know, take care of my car while I'm, while I'm gone. Uh-huh. Because you have to have a trust, and I, I trusted him the first time. Right. I have insurance, by the way. But um, <laughs> You got your car but, back every but, time? But, but, this, but this meeting was in a crack house. And... Um, uh, it was not the kind of place that you would send anybody. But, but not, I, a re, not a literal crack house. It was like... It used to be a crack house. Okay. I'm sorry. Yes, it was in the back. And, you know, I bought him a PA system because nobody could hear anybody, and that was stolen the next night. It was that kind of a neighborhood. Right. Uh, but the the brothers uh, down there all know me from sports. And, hey, Pat O'Brien, what are you doing in this neighborhood, you know? And, <laughs> and I had the trust of them, but also the trust of the fraternity. And I was the only white guy in the meeting, and I had no problem because I'm like everybody else. And a lot of people in this meeting have been through just think of the worst things that could ever happen to you. You know, having to uh, have, you know, oral sex with another man uh, for, you know, a hit of cocaine or right. or uh, in the women's uh, uh, case, uh, having to just a ridiculously horrible sex things you can, you can right. imagine just to get a hip. Right. And you walk out of there and you, and you hug these people and you say, you know what, I'm exa- I may be dressed a little better. Right. And I'm getting into a nice car, but I'm the same as you. Right. By the way, I've never had sex with a man. You know, I wasn't going to ask, but, you know, there was a certain gleam in your eye when you said, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, no, you know, there was a gleam in your eye because you're <laughs> such a voyeur. <laughs> there was no, there was no, let's establish for the record that there was no gleam in anyone's eye. All right. Um, and, yeah, one of the first things I ever heard was it takes people from Yale and people from jail, you know, and that's just sort of it. And, but, um, but, I mean, I mean the point <clears> – <throat> sorry, the point of this this uh, article, and if you're out there listening, I can get – I would just say the Drunk Club, Harper's Magazine, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. And it was a story of this guy who, who was on the road, and and he tried to explain what it meant to him to find an uh, AA meeting. He was in a bar, and I'm not sure if he was going to have a drink, but uh, – 
you know, what it meant for him to, to have that fraternity. And there is something about, somebody asked me, how long are you going to go to these meetings? Right. And I said, for the rest of my fucking life, that's how long I'm going to these meetings. Right. Can I say that word here? Um, it's not allowed in your studio. Uh, in here, we just bleep it out. Uh, uh, you but, can say whatever you want. No, but you know what I mean? They, they say, how long are you going to go to these meetings? And I say, forever. Right. And, you know, I did my 90, 90, uh, 90 days, 90 meetings, and I thought for sure I'd never continue it. Right. But now I get to as many as three or four meetings a day I'm with my schedule. A week. A week, I mean. Yeah. And I've never had a three-meeting day, by the way, yet. That, that's all... a bad, by the way, for you alcoholics, that's a bad day if you're going to three meetings in one day. But thank God the meetings are there. And, you know, in the people that I work with around here, um, you know, they marvel at, w- at what I do, that I, that I leave right. here and go to a meeting. I mean, there's a meeting in two hours here down the street, and and we're lucky in L.A. to have me. I'll tell you, can I tell you a funny story about meetings? Absolutely. Uh, I have a friend who was the first guy, and you must have had this too, he was the first guy in my crowd to get sober. Mm-hmm. The rest of us are all crazy drunks right. and uh, doing cocaine and whatever else the hell comes. And by the way, where were you when I was drinking? Anyway. Um, <laughs> my addiction wasn't pretty. I was like by myself in my... Well, and we could have been together. Okay, that's... Sweet. I always wonder that. Where were these chicks when I was drinking? <laughs> to go on with your story, I don't want to get you sidetracked. So he goes up to Wisconsin. He moves to Wisconsin. And um, this guy uh, was the biggest drunk. And, and we don't say that in AA because we're all the same. But he, right. in college, he was the guy that... First to vomit, first to pass right, out, first right. to throw a brick through a window. Uh, very funny and all that. But he got sober first. When I went sober. Right. What a betrayal. What? what? Yeah, I know. You're going to stop drinking? You? Right. Um, so so anyway, he goes to Wisconsin, and he's trying to find AA meetings because they're not everywhere. In L.A., there's three to 5,000 meetings every day. Uh, New York, obviously big, but there are obviously places all across yeah. the country that don't have a lot of meetings. So he's sitting at home, and he's reading the paper. He's reading the shopper's news, you know, the little thing that they... Yeah. And he sees an ad about a square two inches big, which is a very small ad. And all it says is Alcoholics Anonymous in a town called Bookwald or something, some town, Booker or something you'd never heard of, uh, Presbyterian Church Booker. It's all it said. Alcoholics Anonymous, Presbyterian Church. In the shopper's town. quarterly kind of thing? This little ad okay. at the bottom. So he says to his wife, he said, you know what, I'm going to go try this meeting. He looks on the map, it's 40 miles away, so he drives 40 miles. He gets into this town, it's very small, and of course there on the corner is the Presbyterian Church. No smokers outside, no one car. Right. He's thinking, oh man, I drove all the way. So he walks in, and there are two guys, I swear to God, uh, he says one of the guys' name was Homer, <laughs> and I forget the other guy's name. So my friend walks in, and there's these two guys there with a bunch of chairs, and a big book and a table. Okay. And my friend Terry says, is this Alcoholics Anonymous? And the one guy turns to Homer and says, by God, Homer, the ad worked. <laughs> These two guys had been sitting there for years, and nobody had come to their meeting. So they said, let's take out an ad. Now, <laughs> apparently, there's five people in the meeting now. Saddest, <laughs> sweetest that the thing I've story? ever heard. He said, by God, Homer, the ad worked. <laughs> and they spent two bucks on an ad. Uh, but... You know, it shows, that, and my friend was so happy to get in there. So it shows that it's a welcome community. Now, it's not for everybody. Yep. Um, I talk to a lot of people, and believe me, as you know, I, I, I help as many people as I can. And there are some right. people who just don't like meetings because they find the wrong ones. Yeah. Uh, I can name uh, 10 meetings in L.A. That are the wrong ones. That I hate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a meeting... Uh, called the show-off meeting, which I'm sure you know which one that is. Yeah, I wonder on which Sun- show-off. Yeah. Oh, that show-off Yeah, on one. Sunday, yeah. where people, it's it's packed, uh, but it's kind of where people want to be seen and that sort of thing. Yeah. Then there are the meetings that uh, people go on and say, oh, Lord, there are limos that pull up to my meeting, you know, and they that's another show-off meeting. You mean that the old Friday night one? Uh, no, I don't know. And then there's... Um, you got to tell me where the fancy ones are. Go on. Well, they're not fancy. None of them is fancy. No, no. But... Um, uh, but but there are but the point is there are some meetings, uh, and maybe it's just me. But it, you have to find the right meeting. Yeah, you, and you'll know. I mean, when you walk in. You know, and I I was lucky to find. Uh, I had a I have a great sponsor, and I was lucky to find meetings that kind of, and it shouldn't work this way. That kind of fit my personality. 
Right. You know, the people I might have known, people I know, and that sort of right. thing. I, I think that's being sober in L.A. I really do think that's unique to being sober no, here. I, no, because I find that to be the same thing in New York. I've gone to a lot of meetings in New York City, uh, and uh, it took me a while to find the ones that kind of I felt good in. I don't I lived there for three years. I never once found that. Really? The mustard never. seed? None of that? Oh, no. Atlantic group? No. No, it was just yeah. No, I mean I, I find um, I I think that that I I wish the whole world could have Los Angeles sobriety because I think it's really special yeah, and, here. But but my point is, go to a bad meeting. I've I've been to bad meetings, and I'll go to bad meetings. Right, and, right. Because a meeting is a meeting. Because uh, you're gonna get the same thing. I I was at a meeting in uh, some foreign country, and I remember sitting next to some people, who and you I knew it was their first meeting because they were. Um, for some reason, I got in late, and I was sitting in the back, which I normally try not to do. And they came in and sat way in the back, and they were shaking, and they were like looking around. And finally, during the break, and I went out to them and I said, "This is this your first meeting?" Which is really inappropriate to ask anybody. But and they said, "Yeah." And then they started crying. They said, "We don't know what to do." I said, "Well, you're in, you're at the right place." They were heroin addicts. They've been sober um, for uh, less than a day. Two girls and uh, a guy, a guy and his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And they said, somebody said, try this out. And they were scared to death. Right. So I said to them, well, I'll tell you what, let's just go for a walk. Uh, and a park nearby said, you know, go have a cigarette, and a bottle of water. Because they were afraid to be in that meeting, afraid somebody would know who they were. Right, right. And they um, they went back the next day. I was at the meeting. They came back. So, you know, so it's not for everybody. Every meeting's not. Don't Don't be fooled in saying. Every meeting's for everybody because it's not. You got to no. find, and I think some bad meetings. I'm going to get hell for this, but the, some meetings turn people away and they go back and drink, you know. But but I was lucky, fortunate to have uh, have uh, uh, a great mentors and a great sponsor at the very beginning, so well, I got lucky. Yeah, I mean, but I also think it's about it's um, whatever you're seeking in terms of feeling better. Don't try one thing once and come to some radical conclusion about it. Give something a real try. You know, possibly you were exposed to the wrong thing, so try something else. Yeah, and let me just contradict myself now, Please. having been uh, <laughs> having been in and out of the program really for 10, 11 years. So I kind of know uh, what I'm talking about. And also enrolled at UCLA for the fall. You, you say that, but no, I, I was... when I see you in the classroom, I'm going to believe you. Well, I don't like this mistrust. <laughs> So you're gonna you so so I was, you're, I, I you're gonna in, join me yes, and, my, I am. and my classmates. I was jo- I was in the spring, but I have a busy schedule. I know yes. it's not a, uh, an excuse. And um, I'm I'm gonna do I'm gonna do. I'm still enrolled. I have the CADAC to become. So it's let's let us I have know. a parking spot. Ha ha. Okay. Okay. I guess you got to be Pat O'Brien to get a parking spot. I over have there. a spot. That's that, not easy. By you, the way, I've, you haven't shown up in class, but you got. <laughs> well, I haven't been enrolled. I've enrolled. I haven't gone there. But just but, to but clarify, anyway. to be, this is a, the CADAC to become certified to become a drug and alcohol counselor in California, which is, um, and that's what I'm doing. I've been doing it for about a year. Yeah, it's really and, interesting. Man, I do it anyway, uh, without certification. Uh, my right. point on all this was, oh no, I think people try to find their comfort level. Uh, as a as an alcoholic and a drug addict, you find your comfort level with a certain drug or a wine or a mm-hmm. bar. You find that, uh, or people you want to hang out with, and then eventually people, if the your dealer is, you're forced to hang out with. Same way with AA. I, the, I said, you know, we were talking about bad meetings. Uh, you you can't expect to find any comfort level at any meeting right away, because by the very right. nature of what you're doing. You're you're sort of putting an X across your whole life up until that point, right? And when the first time you say I'm Pat, I'm an alcoholic. By the way, I introduced myself the other day to a stranger. <laughs> oh, there no. was a whole bunch of people. And they go, "Hey, that's Jim Judd." I say, "Yeah, I'm Pat, I'm an alcoholic." I mean, I, I, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> well, that's like the happy birthday when you go uh, to a I'm normal so tired, birthday yeah. party, and then you're like, "Keep, Keep coming, coming back. back," and you're like, "I am an asshole." But but there should be no. Um, eh, and by the way, everything I'm saying here is this is me. Your opinion, yeah. yeah, not a special uh, But there, but it's not supposed to be comfortable. No, exactly. And you're, you're radically changing everything that you know to be true about yeah. your life. And that's why they teach you in, in rehab, or somebody teaches you to get up and share and talk. And that's why you hear literally everybody who speaks, most everybody, uh, begin with "I'm nervous." Yeah. Or when they asked me to do this, I didn't want to do it uh, because it's not a lot of fun. By the way, this is not a fun disease. 
No, I, I was so <laughs> thrilled to be out of my apartment where I had been holed up with the two cats and the cocaine and the camel lights and the yeah. vodka that it seemed fun to me, comparatively speaking. But No, it wasn't fun. It was comfortable. And your brain was telling you this is what you need to do. It sounds like it, I graduated from this course and you didn't, by It the way. sounds like you definitely have not been to a class yet, but I will stop rubbing it in. Can I now give you a quiz? Of course. Okay, you're going to like this part. So I have two I have two questions related to they're like well, trivia. They're multiple choice. Somehow going to portray me in a negative no. manner because I'm back on my feet now and no. I don't need me. Yeah, no, this is they're fun. Okay. okay. So this is the this is well, the the thing. I'm just going to read it. An addiction to blank can cause tinting in the whites of your eyes. Now I'm going to give you three options. Mm-hmm. A morphine. Mhm. B, carrots. Mm-hmm. C, cocaine. Would you like the question again? No, carrots. Yes. Did you know that or do you do process of elimination? No, because I've had the other two. <laughs> My <laughs> eyes have been fine. Okay. By the way, there was some baseball player that swallowed a hot dog wrong the other day. I did. And in order to loosen up his throat, they gave him morphine. Oh. Lucky bastard. No, no, morphine. I, I That was not a drug I enjoyed. It lucid dreaming. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Back to the how quiz. How about that? Huh? Getting that one right, huh? Um, yeah. Okay, let's see how you do on this one. I, I'm rooting for you. Studies show that your brain gets a rush of dopamine when you, A, hear a future hit song, B, eat salt, C, put on lip balm, D, do cocaine, E, A and D, F, all of the above. All right, what was D? Cocaine? Yeah. Well, it's uh, kind of a trick one. I'm I'm hoping I still remember the answer. I do, I do. Yeah. So it's music. Yeah, hearing salt. specifically hearing a future hit song. Right. Salt lip balm. <laughs> do you put on lip Depend, balm? Depends on who's got it on that I'm kissing. No, it's you oh, okay. putting lip balm on your own lips, doing cocaine. Okay, then or it's here. Right, okay. I'm going to say music because uh, music's the only thing. I talked about these attachments earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, cocaine, by the way, I'm going to be, am I right? Well, are you done? Did you no. just get A or did no, you say A, a-, a- and a- and D. D? Yes. Yeah. Because I, I said music and then I was going to say cocaine. Yep. And I already said it before you said it. No, you totally 100% got yeah. it right. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um. The, there's a, a a book that's out now. It's not out. Um, you can order it, pre-order it. Your book? Uh, no, mine's coming out next year, and it's. Um, this book is about uh, how dancing in the streets created a new sensation. Just one song, and and then, and mm. my son's a producer, as you know, in, in New York, and so I know a lot about music. And I I was in a band. I was in a hit band in the Midwest, and and I played with Ringo Starr. I played with all these people. Anyway. Music is the one thing that your brain is about the closest thing to an attachment that your brain likes mm. than anything. When you hear a summer song, uh, California Girls uh, out here, no matter the Beach Boys or the or the the Beach Boys, no matter how old you are, Nikki Six walks by, he could come that's, in and answer that's this. That's very appropriate. Yeah, um, you, uh, a, a song attaches it because not only do you have the song as an attachment, but what happened during that song. Right. So if you hear a song where you first got laid, right, or if a, a song, uh, a journey song where you first um, did something crazy on the road with your girlfriend, journey. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That every song has an attachment to it. So songs, music is very, very powerful. And uh, there have been studies made about why bad music somehow doesn't connect with your brain, because your brain only likes that one good song or two good songs. Right. Uh, and that's why I always, and I've had conversation with Paul McCartney about this. And uh, with uh, George Harrison too, and Ringo, mm-hmm. uh, about the, how how in the hell did the Beatles come up with three hundred and seventy seven songs, and every one of them was good? Well, did you read Outliers? Yes, they 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 had that gig in Liverpool <laughs> that got them you know ten thousand hours of practice. But you know why they they started writing because they were so uh, uh, they were they were on a a, a a series of bands and they were always the last one. And everybody did the same. My hearing here. Everybody did the same, um, same song. They do, you know, Chuck Berry songs and this and that, Twist and Shout. And so finally, John said, you know, no, if we're going to be different, we better write our own songs. And that's how they started. 
Right. And they really wrote their songs uh, talking about desperation, out of desperation to be better. Right. And uh, hmm. they didn't care. I mean, I've asked them. They didn't really care about the feedback. You could, actually, in concert, nobody could hear their songs anyway. Hmm. Over but, the screaming fans, you but mean? But just, it just, yeah, it just marvels me that outside of Mozart and Beethoven, they were able to write all these songs that, that if you that name one Beatles song you've ever turned off. Right. Off right. the radio. So there is a there is an attachment to music, and then the cocaine doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't hurt. <laughs> okay, I mean that's an A plus plus. You don't have to be at UCLA because you not only got the question right, but you had a very interesting explanation and story that involved three of the four Beatles. That's an A plus, Pat. Okay, one now you're being a very good sport. Um, final thing, um, taking a question. Um, over Twitter, uh, related to addiction, I asked people to sure. tweet in. Um, what here are, uh, we got? Is it possible to be addicted to something that's good for you? Cli- at Cliff Robertson asked that. Um, at what point should I'm going to let you pick the question? At what point should an addict stop blaming parents and friends and start taking sole responsibility for their actions? And then uh, somebody asked, "How can you help Amanda Bynes?" All right. Let's begin with uh, an addiction that's good for you. Yeah, can you get addicted to something that's good for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was addicted for a long time to uh, working out, mm-hmm. and that's uh, part of my uh, DNA is that uh, some people want to look better, right? and that's part of the grandiosity part of being an alcoholic. Right. But I was addicted, uh, and still am, to, to looking good, working out. That's an addiction. Right. That's not vanity. Uh, that's an addiction. Well, because it's how you think about it. It's how obsessed you are with it. It also produces dopamine and all right. that sort of thing, too. Uh, you can be addicted to um, uh, vegetarians are addicted to very healthy food. And don't tell me it's not an addiction. They'll right. search out and drive you miles out of your way to get to a place with healthy food. So, yeah, there are lots of things. You can get addicted to being not addicted. Right. You can get addicted to recovery. I do find it annoying when people say, oh, they just get addicted to those meetings. It's like, well, that's not quite right. But I am fully and 100% addicted to Beverly Hills Juice Club. I don't know if you've ever been. Yeah, Beverly. I have. Jesus Christ, the banana manna. I'm, I was addicted to this uh, vapor thing for a while. I think you still might be. It's better than three packs of Marlboros. No, uh, The other one was, uh, the middle one was what? The middle one was, when, do you, when does an addict stop blaming? This is a great question. Stop blaming the parents and friends and start taking responsibility for their actions and their drug use. Man, well, it depends on how much blame the parents put on you. I mean, I think that goes back and forth. Uh, but that is a strong one. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, the Amanda Bynes thing, I have nailed, so hold on. Okay. Um, that's a strong one because there's so much, if you're poorly raised, and most people are, Yeah. by the way, um, if you're poorly raised, you have such a rage and um, uh, negative response to anything that involves family reunions and relatives. That it just create if you're not in some sort of recovery program or therapy, just creates more resentments. I still have an uncle that I hate. He's dead, right? right, right. Uh, because he didn't like my mom, and we were Abe Lincoln poor, and he was very wealthy and never helped my mom or anything. And right. so to, to this day, I hold that resentment, and I've got to make that amends someday. Uh, I guess at his gravesite. But um, uh, well, what was the question? Well, the th- the question is, when do you stop blaming them? Yeah. Uh, you probably never do. You can, you can control it. I mean, how many people do you know who say, oh, I hate my dad, I'll never get along with him? Right. Um, uh, but I think, I, I don't think you get over stuff like that. I think you can control it to a point where you say you're over it. You don't have to act as if every now and then. Yeah, I mean, I do think that... that... It's a tough one. Uh, uh, parenting is a tough one. Yeah, yeah. For, I, I absolutely. Um, I I know that I blamed my family a lot. I mean, not necessarily for oh, I do cocaine. See, I, I never did. My dad was a very active uh, alcoholic. I mean, he drank all the time. And you never you never blamed him for the fact. He, well, that... he never hit me, so right. that's good. Yeah. And he was kind of amusing. I'll tell you, it's in my book. Uh, my dad used to drag me. My dad, Joel Bryan, is a handsome, handsome, handsome. No guy. doubt. And uh, just a just dashing Golden Gloves champ and and uh, life of the party and just a um, uh, he left us when we were three but I lived with him in the summertime but he would take me to like we would I would get there 
Uh, I would take a train from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, age seven, mm. take the train to Des Moines, a transfer at age seven to a bus, and then he picked me up at the bus station in Knoxville, Iowa, and then usually take me to the fair or something, and then go right to a bar and just you know tell the guy put this guy on twenty rides. Mm. Uh, but one time I was about eight or nine. I remember this like it was yesterday, and he took me to a bar, and I was sitting in the corner drinking uh, chocolate pop. You ever had chocolate pop? No, it sounds delicious, and yeah, I want it's some. Addicting, that you should offer. No, you should have offered me that. Too. It is chocolate pop. It's got seltzer in it. Anyway, so I'm looking at my dad, and he's there at the table. He's, he's telling a story. Everybody's laughing at him, and they all got the tall Budweisers there and the shots. You know the scene. And finally, my dad looked over at me, and this is probably about the only thing that he really did for me. He looked over at me, and he walked over. He called me Patty. Mm. He said, "Patty, this is who your daddy is." And at the time, I thought, yeah, well, my dad's a cool guy. He's funny, and people listen to him. And now I almost cry when I say those words because that was his way of saying to me, this is about what you're going to get. Right. I'm in a bar. I'm getting drunk with my friends. Right. And um, uh, in my book, uh, when I uh, dedicate it to my son, I'll probably write, this is who your daddy is. Hmm. You know. But um, Amanda Bynes. Is a typical example of somebody who uh, got the wrong direction, and just like Lindsay Lohan, who I tried to help, as you know, of, mm-hmm. I wrote an open letter to her. It's on the internet. Uh, and Amanda just is addicted to the drama. Right. She's not only addicted to whatever she's doing. I don't know what she's doing, but she does. She's not well. Right. And the the showing off and the acting out stuff is a, an example that you probably learned in your highfalutin school. Of, uh, what highfalutin school did I go? Let's stay the on one Amanda. You're, you're, the one you're making fun of me for not showing up to class at. Oh, at UCLA, yeah. we don't study things like this. No, but you know, she, I think she, with the wig she wore in court, and, yeah. and then the continuing of it, uh, for some reason her brain is, I don't think she's well, uh, for some reason she's addicted to that attention. Right. Now, a band of minds, I know her. She used to be the sweetest, and she may still be. Mm-hmm. And if she's listening, I'd love to connect with her again. I, I knew her well. I'm, Interviewed a lot. She was the sweetest little darling. Hmm. But something happened. Something didn't go right. You can list off the number of young actresses uh, that didn't go well for them. Britney Spears, I don't know how she got back on track, but she did. Right. You know, she was nuts. You know? yeah. And, yeah. And, and at the time, I thought she was just addicted. And it turns out I was right. Addicted to the attention. Right. Not like she was getting any attention. She was the number one right. vocalist. Uh, but she got herself back on the rails. But... Amanda Bynes is worrisome, and, and I don't think she has anybody strong in her life to tell her, you know, get it together. Right. Or, yeah, she seems past the point of listening if people are doing that for the moment. Yeah, and I mean, we're all like that. I mean, I, yeah. you know, we, I did, you know, we were all like that. And, and just God saved the person who saved me mm. because I finally had somebody that looked me in the eye and, and say, Everybody knew I was drinking. I mean, I wasn't. I had scars on my face, and I was in hospitals, and you know, locked up for a couple of days in New York City. All this stuff, not in jail, uh, right. because I kept falling down. Uh, but I finally found somebody. Uh, I finally found somebody who said, "Pat, stop this," and that somebody was me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it finally said, "All right, the party's over. You'll find something else." Right. Right. Well, this has been fantastic. And great. Wait a minute. I want to finish my thought. Finish? Was it about Amanda Bynes? Yeah. And Amanda needs to find somebody who can look her in the eye and just shake her and say enough's enough. I, As I said, that person for me was me. Right. Said, Pat, the party's over. You've heard enough people. And really, I, didn't, I really didn't have to apologize or, or any, to anybody, really, but my family. Right. And finally, when they said to me, this isn't about your family. It isn't about your job. It's not about the next car you can uh, buy. It's not about the women who might be attracted to you or you to them. It's about you this time. Right. And if you don't stop now, you are going to die. And that's what's going to happen to Lindsay Lohan and Amanda Bynes or anybody out there. Uh, take it from me. If you don't stop now and find some help, and it's not going to be comfortable. None of it is at the beginning. Right, right. But for some reason, everybody I know who's sober is very comfortable with saying, my name is Pat, I'm an alcoholic. They all call themselves Pat? Every single one of them. It was my <laughs> request when I came into AA. It's the least and we can do Somehow they for you. honored that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you doing this. It Thanks, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> no, Anna, thank you. You do a lot of good things for people. So I hope, 
I hope this is obviously these are all my opinions, but you know, folks, you got to fall in love with it, and if you don't, uh, you'll be back on the street. I promise you. All right, thank you. You bet.